Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Good morning, everyone. I am very grateful to be here this morning and very grateful for all of you being here and to see you all. Um, this talk is called Making Friends with Eco-Anxiety. And the term eco-anxiety covers all fear, anxiety, grief, other emotions that arise in response to the climate crisis. Some people may have been experiencing it for years and to some it may feel a little more new. A reason to talk about it now is that catastrophes and suffering related to the crisis um, and threats to safety are becoming harder and harder to ignore. And additionally, there's a lot of news relating to it. You know, the I, good news and bad news, the IPCC report, proposed legislation, you know, it's in our, it's in our lives. And there's still plenty of denial about it out there. And I feel that there's still stigma and resistance to talking about it sort of in polite company. But I also feel that it is already a part of our lives and will just continue to be present and honestly more intense over time. So it's good to familiarize ourselves, get better at naming what's arising, similar to the process of naming difficulties or distractions as they come up on the cushion, you know, restlessness, you know, just naming and, and get better at, at having these conversations. That's the reason for today's talk. Um, some general reminders, I am not a Dharma teacher. Uh, and when it comes to climate change, I'm not a scientist and I'm not a mental health professional. It's just me. It's just Kate. Um, I have been an activist for a couple of years and that interest has led me to you know, read a lot about the crisis. Um, but I've also read a bit about the Buddhist response to climate change. Um, Laura. Rick and I all completed the Eco Sattva training program earlier this year. Um, I also did a shorter course called Mindfully Facing Climate Change, which came with this book. Um, and I gave an earlier talk in February called Our Path and Climate Change. So that is all of the not very much authority with which I speak on this topic. So I appreciate your grace and patience. And this you know, this is a completely safe space. All responses, all feelings that arise uh, in response to this topic, they're all welcome. They're all appropriate, all of them. I just want to put that out there. I want to define for a second what I mean when I say climate crisis. It's, I'm talking about the current and projected climate and ecological crises. They're associated social and financial crises that they may cause, issues of environmental justice, and the general sort of unsustainability of the way that we live on the planet. And a bit of a Buddhist diagnosis of the climate crisis is, is that it's really a big expression of greed, 
aversion and delusion at work in the world. And what I see is the main, and many see is the main delusion in particular here is that we are separate from nature. We're somehow it's masters and we can, you know, exploit it, do what we want with it. Um, it's a delusion that we are not a part of it, an integral part of it. So it's ultimately sort of a delusion of separateness. And the solution that I wanna take to this crisis is, is really sort of a bodhisattva path, an eco-sattva path. I wanna imagine the world as it could be. And I wanna cultivate the paramis in order to move through the world in a way that is healing it. But that's not what today's talk is about. <laughs> today's talk is about the bummer, <laughs> the downside, because we won't get through to our transformation into bodhisattvas uh, if we are first stuck in anger or worldly grief or spiritual bypass. So let's focus on being friends with this, you know, bad, bad stuff. And if we can see that these things are just going to continue to come up for us, let's work on expanding the container in order to be big enough to hold it all. So there's sort of eight responses. This is no, by no means a complete list, but I wanted to sort of touch on these eight things and I'm going to post them in the chat real quick. So fear, anxiety, sadness, anger, guilt, denial, confusion, and numbness. These are some of the possible responses to that could be termed with the umbrella term eco-anxiety. And for each of these, I'm gonna speak a bit on each, but I wanna invite everyone to explore for themselves today the following questions. Does this have a different flavor than the same response that's aroused in the context of something else, relationships, health? When sadness comes from eco-anxiety, is it the same as other types of sadness? And how is it the same and how is it different? Does it have a different intensity? What does it feel like in the body? And what do you notice brings it up? So I invite everyone to be reflecting on these and, and feeling into the felt sense as we talk about each one. And I'm also gonna say a little bit about I think some common sort of pitfalls. There are some solutions to each of these aspects of eco-anxiety that are, that are out there, but they're quite unskillful. So first I'll say, when, when did these come up for me? When did these eight come up for me? They come up for me everywhere uh, in my consumption of news and in my reading. They can come up for me in conversations with other people. We don't even have to be talking about the climate, but I might be thinking about it. And I'm wondering why aren't they thinking about it? Why aren't they worried about it? That can bring up emotions. Um, I see things around me, something advertised to me. 
Um, I can go, oh, oh, but that's not skillful. And I can see how others behave and think the same thing. So I think it comes up everywhere. <laughs> um, but that's just me. So I want to talk about fear. Number one is fear. And I mean fear in the now. And when fear arises in response to a threat, you, you listen. It is already your friend. It is pumping your adrenaline and it's keeping you alive. So for me, fear is my stomach dropping. It's a flurry of butterflies in my stomach and it's a rush of heat to my face. And extreme weather events, which we associate you know, with climate change, these, these threats come sometimes with little or no warning and they have that surprise feeling to them. And that can bring a tremendous sense of loss of control because you didn't know it was coming. Um, so for me, that's what sort of the, you know, when the sky is orange or the air quality outside isn't good enough to breathe, this is what's happening for, for me. Number two, I wanna talk about anxiety, dread and worry. Sometimes anxiety is really maladaptive uh, because I have anxiety over an unknown future possible bad event, say a tough conversation I have to have with someone and I'm worried it's not gonna go well. Um, and it's a, it's a creation of my own imagination. And I cling to it like, oh, it's definitely gonna go bad. I know it is. And that causes me suffering. But this is, exists only in my own mind. Sometimes I have to have a difficult conversation. And I don't know if it's going to go good or, or bad. And the uncertainty alone triggers anxiety. And this feels like a tightness in my throat and a busyness or an energy in my stomach. And oftentimes for me, anxiety is very easy to spot. It can be very strong. So it's sort of easy to see, although it can be really hard to let go of. Uh, but anxiety in the context of climate change is really tricky because it's really, it's fear of future suffering. And we are present-minded folk. <laughs> so I'm gonna make a comparison to the earthquake that happened the other night, right? There was an earthquake and I hope and think that your house probably did not fall down. Um, but you should also be in an earthquake safe building that was maybe built recently up to code or got retrofitted. You should have insurance on your items and your dwelling. Um, and you should probably have water bottles in uh, rooms of your home uh, in case you're stuck in one of them during, during an earthquake. So we imagine a future catastrophe, a big earthquake based on the laws of physics. With climate change, we want to behave similarly. We want to be aware of the possible two, two and a half, three degree temperature increases and what they may bring. That future may not come to pass. We don't know, but it helps us to prepare in the same way that our buildings are prepared for the earthquake that we don't know when and how and where and how big. 
it also helps us better see the truth of how our actions today relate to that possible future. So uh, imagining future catastrophes, hmm. we have to feel into whether or not complete runaway catastrophizing is happening. And this takes discernment and skillfulness. We wanna be wary of feeling certain that the future will be terrible and it all is completely hopeless. You know, that clinging to knowing exactly how bad the future will be is, is unskillful. But the future's, the future's not gonna be perfect. And so we have to make friends with this anxiety because it will, it will continue to come up. For, my, for me, eco-anxiety can be very much in the background, sort of a baseline quiet anxiety, which is different from sort of more immediate forms that I feel where I feel that, you know, uh, energy in my stomach and I can feel my pulse race and it's sort of more immediate. Eco-anxiety for me can be very much quiet. It's still a tightness in my throat, but I find that it colors everything. When it's running in the background for me, it makes a lot of things feel more negative and it makes a lot of things feel more rushed, if I can describe it that way. But that's my, that's my eco-anxiety. Number three is sadness or grief, loss. For me, sadness feels like a heaviness or a weightiness. Um, and it also feels like a total erasure of all my energy, just a total sapping of my energy. And there's a couple of flavors of loss associated with climate change or different levels. And I want to say that all of them are valid. This is not a, a order of magnitude or a list of importance. This is all different types, which are equally valid. So, so the first level is, is, is loss, of, loss of life or loss of health, loss of beloved spaces, loss of large numbers of animal and plant life, or complete loss of species or ecosystems. We could be feeling all of these things, any of them. Another level, I feel of loss associated with climate crisis is potentially even the loss of a whole culture. So imagine an island nation that does get, that has to experience managed retreat away from their homeland because of sea level rise. I feel differently when it's the loss of something that I assumed would be persisting beyond things that I know are impermanent. I know my life is impermanent, but I have assumptions about what will persist when I'm gone. Aspects of culture or language or th things that are greater than myself, I expect to keep going. And with climate change, there's possibility of the loss of, of things on that level. Um, that which we actually expect to outlast us, not just affect us, but outlast us. And for me, that one feels really heavy. And I don't bring this up to bum everybody out, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, but I wanna validate 
that these responses are all possible. These potential futures have a non-zero probability. And, but we have lo- we've lost civilizations before. I mean, someone was the last inhabitant of the Mayan civilization. Uh, languages do get lost. You know, culture does change. It's not always looking exactly how it looks for us. But if this is going to bring these changes, if they're going to bring a lot of grief, then let's grieve. Let's cry. Let's work on that container to hold how very big, you know, this is. I find a third flavor of loss can be a loss in our sense of security. The feeling that, you know, just generally tomorrow is going to be like today. Um, You know, everything is going to change. In the context of climate change, either we're going to change a lot um, and the planet is going to remain more the same, or we're not going to change enough and the planet is going to change on us. The change is happening either way. But change was never not true. Everything was always going to change. Change is the thing that is always happening. And change always means loss. We're not entitled to things staying the same. And we have experience with this because of COVID. Does anyone say that they wish they could go back to the days of the yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, people wonder, will we ever give up the mask kind of things? You know, this is, we're not entitled to everything looking like how it used to look. So this is, this is something we, we have experience. We can apply to this feeling of loss of stability. We can use investigation of this grief, these different types of grief, to see where our clinging is. This is one way that a grief can be friendly with us. Um, I'll say that a big point of grief for me was sort of having my children and then realizing that uh, things on the planet may not be as easy for them as they were for me. And I started to panic, you know, they're not going to have that ideal future that I thought they were. And I talked to my dad about it. And he said that when I was a baby, he had a moment where he totally freaked out because he thought, oh my gosh, how could I bring a child into a world with two nuclear superpowers pointing missiles at each other? Because I was born in 1983 and it was still the Cold War. Um, And I thought, oh, of course, you don't get to bring a baby into a world. (laughs) That's perfect. You get to bring a baby into the world that is. And that was true when I was born and it's true when my kids are born and it's gonna be true forever. And I'm so glad he said that it really opened my eyes. I was clinging to a thing I never had, which was an assurance of some kind of world for them to be in. It's a nice idea. It's not very helpful. I was clinging to it. I had to grieve letting that, letting that go. For me, the context was a climate change one, but it's not a, a, it's not a unique process to climate change. And of the changes we'll experience in our life, sometimes we will grieve the loss of a habit, something that makes us feel, something that we like and that makes us feel comfortable. And there will be grief over loss of life or loss of our health. So there's a lot of loss and a lot of fear of loss. 
but it can point us to where we're clinging to things that maybe are not such important things can be illuminating of where our clinging is and we can make it our friend in that way. Now one um, very unskillful solution to climate grief is worldly grief. And I am super unqualified to be able to describe the difference between deep compassion and worldly grief, but it's described as the difference between witnessing suffering and wishing for the relief of suffering and identifying with the world's suffering and becoming very lost in that. I think that is an entire several Dharma talks on its own. So I won't say any more about that, Um, but this is a pitfall, just absolutely going down, down, down the sort of grief rabbit hole. There's another little pitfall, you know, with climate grief, which is that it's probably worse for somewhere, someone somewhere else, you know, but that does not make your grief invalid. So don't deny your grief that's coming up. Make friends instead. Um, and I think Margaret has an entire book about making friends with grief. Uh, so high recommend there. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna try to get through everything. Okay, anger and blame. Anger for me feels like heat and energy. The volume of my voice goes up. This comes up a lot when I look out at the world. I get angry at a lot of things. Um, But the Buddha was clear that anger is not a tool to be wielded in the service of anything, no matter how righteous. So we should be, we should pay attention to it arising and greet it like a friend, not be aversive to it. Um, I try to keep the word rage, uh, but reframe it for myself to sort of say, can I, can I, rage in the service of something positive as opposed to being enraged with something or someone you know can i can i take the energy that the arising anger gives me but le- and thank it for showing me what's going wrong but leave the blame leave the object of my anger out of it so keep the energy as my friend and, and take the blaming and shaming aspect, you know, see that that's delusion. Uh, guilt. Guilt feels like the most gross, sour pit in my stomach. And it comes up for me, any sort of climate change contemplation I do, because I think, well, I'm 37 years old and there's all these people on the world that are younger than I am and they're going to have it worse, blah, blah, blah. And boom, massive amounts of guilt. This crisis is human caused and I am a human. So I must be responsible, right? We believe in our interconnection, our interbeing with all things. So we know that we play a part And importantly, we have a part to play in resolving it. But it's important to remember that we're also all trapped in a toxic system, greed, aversion, delusion, running rampant. So until we're all, all of us somehow awakened out of greed, aversion, and delusion, 
that guilt is going to continue to arise. And we can be friends with it because it shows we care about others and we want to be accountable. And I think that that combo is what leads us to feelings of guilt. It's, it says we care. We care about our role and we care about others. I want to make a particular uh, point here about guilt um, and about sort of our personal role, our personal responsibility. Um, the term carbon footprint, which people use to sort of describe their own contribution to emissions, that term was dreamt up by a PR firm that worked for a fossil fuel company. It's better business at say Chevron if Kate thinks that she is responsible for the climate crisis. So our natural guilt response is exploited in the furtherance of this crisis. So do be on the lookout for that. Because guilt that comes up because I care about the earth and I care about other people is my friend, or I need to make it my friend. It's born out of a good place. But guilt that Exxon makes you feel is not your friend. <laughs> with, with investigation, hopefully we can tell the difference and you can tell Shell Oil's guilt trip to take a hike. That is completely unskillful stuff, trying to put it on you. Denial. So denial can be just a very aversive feeling, a very no, 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 thank you. For me, it can also be actually a joyful feeling because I can get really excited and cling to some bit of good news and then when bad climate news comes along, I say, oh, I treat this with my open hands. I'm very, this is what it is. And it means that I am clinging to good feelings and trying to let bad feelings go. And it winds up filtering what's coming through. It's eventually a denial of things as they really are. If I cling only to, the, if I really emotionally cling to the good news and I have an open hand to the bad news, letting it slide off. There are a lot of forces in the world that wanna give you good news and make you feel like it's all okay, you don't have to worry. And there's a lot inside of you that wants to accept good news, that wants good news to land and stay. The good news could be, you know, um, some bit of technology that it might do a little bit of good, but you start to really feel like, oh, it's okay, we're saved. We have this one thing. <laughs> Companies will also greenwash, uh, you know, what they're doing, make you feel like, oh, it's okay, don't worry. There's also a lot of things that, will, you know, are sold to us. Like, oh, if you buy this thing, then we can save, you know, the planet. And those are all things that have that sort of like, oh, good, I can, <laughs> this will be great. You know, um, so that's how I experience it is actually when I get a little too excited. <laughs> and I think the answer is a little too easy. Um, that's what I'm looking out for is my denial, is my aversion to what's really happening actually coming up here. Confusion. So confusion for me is an unsettled feeling in my stomach. Um, I consume a lot of information about climate change and it can be completely contradictory. Um, 
And if I think I understand something and then I find out that I wasn't quite right about that, you know, that's very unsettling, feels like the rug's coming out from under me. And I don't, I don't like that feeling very much. Feels like unstable footing. But a lot of this, there's also this phenomenon I call jumping in and out of the weeds. So an example is when I'm at the grocery store and I'm trying to buy a very healthy vegetable, but the only way that I can buy it is in like a plastic clamshell container, which is not recyclable, blah, blah, blah. I start to freak out. I am 100% in the weeds in that moment. I have no perspective. I'm just freaking out about this one little decision. And other people who are very well-meaning and have very good intentions will make these sort of in the weeds comments as well. Like, oh, if everybody just did X, or if everybody just stopped Y, or if we all just adopted this one technology, we'd be safe. That, all of that, my panic at the grocery store, people's well-meaning comments, it's really a lot of confusion at work. And it's hard to manage all of that information and kind of keep the forest for the trees. So becoming friends with the confusion is just acknowledging how big and complex the issue is. And getting comfortable that you won't have the number one right answer all the time on how to do everything. You're gonna be saying, I don't know. For me, this is hard because I like the illusion that I have a lot of answers. <laughs> I have clinging to the kind of person that I am that I know a lot of stuff and got a lot of answers. So I have to become comfortable and friends with just the feeling of confusion. It's going to come. It's it's not incorrect. This is a huge, complex issue. So I got to be friends with it. I will say that another thing that kind of stinks about the climate crisis is that similar to how your guilt can be exploited, your confusion can also be exploited. So if you're being pushed different types of information and you don't know exactly what you should be doing, you won't work hard. You won't be able to move forward and make change. So like, I don't know if such and such um, product is a good one or a bad one. You know, it confuses me until I, I can't sort of uh, function and then things stay the way that they are. And numbness. I'm trying to be mindful of time. I talk so much. Oh my gosh. Okay, numbness. So numbness for me is the feeling, it comes from total overwhelm and an overload of all of these other uh, responses we just talked about. And numbness is I can't, I can't feel anything. I can't, I can't feel my compassion even. And, you know, here, our, a big pitfall is spiritual bypass. So let's say climate grief is coming up or climate anxiety is coming up and we sit on the cushion. We just want the feeling to go away. Um, and so we sit on the cushion until basically we're not thinking about it anymore. And so we want to be wary of that. And there's another pitfall here, which is, you know, some of the changes that are going to happen will be happening a little bit slowly and a little bit sort of on a continuum instead of sort of drastically and noticeably. And a pitfall there is that we just kind of slowly adjust our expectations. We're trying to be equanimous, um, but we don't want that to mean that we accept a world with less life 
and more suffering because we were trying to be equanimous and our expectations just sort of adjusted themselves as things changed. There's kind of a, it's hard to describe, but I think of it as kind of like a go to sleep and let things happen mode that's possible when you're experiencing a lot of numbness. So each of these responses can arise for something that's happening 5,000 miles away, 200 miles away, or to our own air, our own food supply, our own health, our own children. It's, it's happening in human lives. It's happening in animal lives. It's happening for all living beings. So any of that can cause the arising of this eco-anxiety. And I believe that it's appropriate for us to pay attention to all the types of suffering that are arising within us for loved ones or through our compassion for all sentient beings. Because we can navigate skillfully if we're listening to all the different types and not shutting out one and infecting another. We can experience the eco-anxiety on all these levels. No one is less valid than the other. And if we can get familiar with what these look like, we can start to befriend. I wanna say that it's also really important to see all of these things in yourself as things that are just arising, but also to recognize that they are arising in others. So it would not be skillful if you and I see our friend denial or aversion arising when it comes to climate change. But when it comes to someone else and they say something denial or aversive about climate change, we shame them for being deniers because we must compassionately see it as the same thing that's just arising in them. So we're making friends because these things are gonna be in our lives, they're gonna come up, but it's like they're mutual friends to everyone else too. <laughs> so I'll end with a bit of good news and then we'll go into uh, breakout rooms. People can share their own reflections. You know, we are, Buddhists, and we believe that the, the ultimate truth is through an awakening. And we believe that this is possible for ourselves and for others and for society as a whole. So this is a crisis that we cannot solve by ourselves, but we also believe in the possibility of everyone to reach the point of awakening where people see the truth um, and see the truth of the greed, aversion, and delusion at work, and we get away from this. We, we believe in the solution. We also have this tool of, you know, naming, naming these reactions, naming our eco-anxiety. This is an exercise that we already do for other things or for the same things about different topics. And the exercise helps us to start to make friends. Okay. Thank you all for listening to my long talk. And so I'd love for, um, I would love to do breakout rooms and Don is gonna set that up. So I'm gonna post these questions again. How do these things have the same or a different flavor when it comes to the climate crisis, a different intensity? What does it feel like in the body? And what do you see was bringing them up for you?
Yeah. I wanted to ask you one question. Is Lars still here? I'm on my iPad and it's I'm not. Here. Yeah. Is Lars still here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. L I, Lars, did you want to tell us what, in, in a couple of minutes about your work? Because I know you're also active in this. Yeah. Um, uh, I was just I was just talking to Kevin in the breakout room. Um, just my my whole take on when we were doing the like ecosapa trainings was I, I was just kind of thinking about like the mindful action. Like for me, it's it's that is the antidote to despair. In fact, that's like the that's like the slogan to one of the organizations I work for, Citizens Climate Lobby. It's in all of our letterheads. Action is the antidote to despair. Um, uh, and I was we were kind of mentioning the idea that you know denialism uh, is kind of on its way out. Like you know, it's it, people climate. That's that's kind of a, a passe term, climate climate denier. Now we have like climate doomers. Like we kind of skipped to oh well now it does exist, but we can't do anything about it. So I'm going to dump on on the internet. Um, and I'll make myself feel good because my feelings are validated because everybody else is doing the same thing and it becomes this weird echo chamber. So we have to kind of get past that and say, okay, there is a problem and there's things we can do about it and, and everybody can act on it. Um, and there's just so many things to pick from. There's just so many solutions. That's why I was going to ask Kate if we could post the, um, the action item list that we've been putting together um, because there is just huge menu of things, a real living document. It's one of the things that like I kind of envisioned for um, what we could, the offerings we could bring to uh, the Sangha. Um, could those go in the newsletter? That'd be uh, good. Well, what I would like to do, maybe propose to the two of you, and Kate is about to be very busy very soon, as some of you know. <laughs> um, but Lars, maybe if you want to prepare something, we can take a Sunday afternoon. I'm happy to host here. We have a large space um, and present what you've been working on and the kinds of things that we could do. And we could even make that hybrid um, so that the out of towner folks like, you know, if they want to, or we could just record it, record some of it um, so we could have dialogue and meet if, if you'd like that, and Kate, if you're available for it too. Um, yeah, so that would be one thing we could do. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I was, uh, in the close, I was going to talk about uh, some things that we have in mind to serve the Sangha. Um, <clears throat> I think my, my thought about today's talk is not that it's a lot of solutions. It's not the, a lot, it's a lot of um, what do we do with what's arising? And so there are, there are ways and, and means of getting active, but as a Sangha, um, you know, the role may be more of holding the space and, and allowing everything to come up um, and then sharing ideas about, you know, what actions people want to take. Um, so yeah, I hope <clears throat> I have to figure out how that document best exists online where people can get at it. Uh, and so I don't think if you click on that link right now, you may not get access, but I promise I'll figure oh. that out. I'm also in charge of the newsletter. So I'll figure out something. Oh, okay. there'll, be, 
We can change the access to it if we want to look at it. Go for it, Lars. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, you know, so that would just be, you know, somewhere where good book recommendations, good website recommendations, um, uh, activist groups, things like that can just be and exist and people can and uh, avail themselves of it. Um, but we do have a few minutes. And so I wondered if anyone wanted to, first of all, let me say that Bonnie put a question in the chat that I don't want to ignore, which was, um, <clears throat> as it has come to light that many folks don't believe in science, how do we help them realize the need to act? Bonnie, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, thanks um, for that non-answer. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of the, that's part of being friends with my confusion. Um, and the, there's, there's the skillful sort of, there's the discernment that I've done that, you know, shows the things that really don't work, which is certainly beating people over the head with numbers and stats and figures and science. Uh, that's usually not a good um, way to go about having a conversation with someone, but a, a sort of compassionately oriented, open discussion about um, what what comes up for them when they see a headline. If they think a headline is nonsense, you know, well, what's coming up for them when they see that? Is Are they feeling... Do they feel afraid and they're having a fight or flight response, which is why the information gets chucked so easily? I mean, that, that could be a discussion with someone who is experiencing aversion and denial that's coming out. Um, but I, that is a super amateur recommendation and I, I can't say that I have a great answer. Um, and, and thinking about that bodhisattva path is about sort of how you move in the world in this compassionate way. And sometimes you don't know the way that you're actually affecting someone else um, by how you're acting with compassion. Sometimes that could actually affect how someone thinks, uh, but you can't be clinging to that. Um, that's the best I got. Okay, is there anyone who would like to um, talk about what they shared in the group or one of these eight things that like really rings for you? Um, going, going off of that, um, there's, there's a concept, and I'm not sure if it comes from Buddhism or Hinduism, that awakening is actually inevitable through no, no matter how many lives it takes. Um, the, the truth of, of our existence here is that awakening is the end point. Total freedom is the end point, and the, and the things happening in your life are moving it towards you, whether it feels like it or not. And so I feel on a smaller scale, awakening to the reality of climate change is inevitable because it's moving, you know, closer and closer to your doorstep until that awakening is knocking on your door because you're sweating in your house and there's no power, whatever happens. Uh, so um, we, uh, you know, the fact that we're here working on ourselves and working on awakening is because we've had these circumstances either in this life or in previous lives that have brought us into this kind of, you know, we're lucky to be here place. Um, other people may have not have had those circumstances. Those circumstances are headed their way <laughs> inevitably, but that's okay if, you know, they're moving at their speed 
um, because the awakening to climate change, I think, is inevitable. And it's not my job to uh, awaken them. <laughs> the truth is going to awaken them. So that takes off a little anxiety of like, I have to make this happen for them because that's not my job either. Yeah, thank you so much. That's such a hopeful note. Um, and also, yeah, someone else may someone else may be stuck in the aversion. And so, you know, we have to be aware of our aversion, you know, that's where, where our work is. Yeah, I'd just like to say that I really enjoyed your talk. And you made the comment early on that uh, we think we're se separate from nature. And I think uh, I've, I've been a student of uh, studies on diet for quite a while, and I can see how the explosion of diseases like diabetes, we used to call it maturity onset diabetes, now it's happening in 10 year old kids uh, because we're eating so much processed food and sugar. Uh, Alzheimer's, uh, microvascular disease of the brain, peripheral vascular disease, colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer. There's so many things that come down to the fact that we think that we can eat anything that they can cook up in a test tube. <laughs> it took two and a half million years for our bodies to evolve to eat the natural food that exists on this planet. We're a part of this planet, but we think of ourselves as separate. And so we can refine sugar. We can we can make flour and make bread. And you know all these things are like slow poisons. They don't kill you right away. If they killed you right away, we would eat a good diet. But all, a lot of them take 10, 20 years before symptoms develop. And so I just hope everyone will, will uh, realize that a lot of the confusion about what we should eat and not eat is driven by corporations that are making a lot of money. Uh, the majority of the stuff in the supermarket is poison. The stuff that's in the mm -hmm. center of the supermarket, you know, the crackers, the cookies, the, the bread, all that stuff. But a lot of companies make a lot of money. It's a lot of jobs dependent on it. So it's very hard to get the truth out. But the truth is known. The truth exists. So I hope everyone will, will explore that truth and try to uh, realize what they should and shouldn't eat because we are a part of nature. And uh, that's another thing that's killing us slowly. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. There's a, there's a lot of a lot of suffering born of the same, the one and the same delusion of the separateness, right? right? Great, okay, well, I wanna be mindful of time. So I'd like to uh, dedicate the merit um, and I'll just take two more minutes to do that. I'll ring my, my bells again. This is a special sort of eco-sadfa dedication of the merit. So I invite everyone to take on that comfortable posture again and take a deep cleansing breath. May all beings be held sacred. May all beings be cherished. May all injustices of oppression 
and devaluation be fully righted, remedied, and healed. May all who are captured by hatred be freed to the love that is our birthright. May all who are bound by fear discover the safety of understanding. May all who are weighed down by grief be given over to the joy of being. May all who are lost in delusion find a home on the path of wisdom. May all wounds to forests, rivers, deserts, oceans, all wounds to Mother Earth be lovingly restored to bountiful health. May all beings abide in peace and well being, awaken and be free. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.